a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswood, a show about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Matsky, and it is a true privilege to introduce to you Andy Matsky. I'm glad it's true, not a false privilege. True <laughs> privilege. It's or, like a true fact. Or an insincere privilege. Yes. It, that it, it is, is not. That it is, is a true not privilege. a false privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so, how have you been doing? How have I been doing? I've been doing well, and at the same time, it's been crazy around here. Um, we had some sump pump action going Ooh, on. It was so much fun. Like, the sump pump stopped working, and then we had to fill up buckets of water, and we had to do a bucket brigade, so our basement went flood here at Sasso Tower. It was awesome. You should have you come. So, it was memorable. The next day, my new hat arrived, so I felt very happy about that. I got a, I think it's an Away logo for the Eugene Emeralds. They are a Class A affiliate, I believe, of some Major League Baseball team. They're minor league. That escapes me right now. But the Eugene Emeralds... Padres. Okay. Yes, you're correct. The Padres. The Eugene Emeralds based in Oregon, have done a very wise thing in embracing their Bigfoot heritage. And so this hat has a Bigfoot head, and he's chomping on a sort of neon green tree, and it's just a glorious hat. I am sort of a a hatophile, or whatever you would call. Hat head? Hat head. Yeah, sure. And this is one of my favorites. I just love it. So that's a happy thing. Um, that's pretty much what's been going on with me. How about yourself? I've been doing great. Sump pump, recovering from sump pump issues, and what else? Oh, we installed a new mailbox today. That was fun. I've been enjoying the nice weather outside Sasso Tower, dunking basketballs on a, what is it, like seven foot hoop? I can't jump that high. Dunking a lot is what I've been doing. (laughs) To make a long story short on the mailbox... It's fixed. It's fixed. It was held together literally by duct tape for about the past four months. Four months. And that was your idea. That was my and it was idea. genius because we live in an area where snowfall can accumulate rapidly. And because of that, the plows do a really good job of keeping the roads clean. The unintended consequence to that is that mailboxes get decapitated routinely, which is what happened to us. Yeah. And. I was like, why can't we fix it? And they're like, we can't fix it. But we got um, a um, a mailbox head, a new head. <laughs> it was a little different than one, the one we had. Yes. But it fit in the, the neck of the mailbox. And then I was able to wrap a lot of duct, a lot of duct tape around it. And it stayed together. All this time, I've never had to fix it. It's it's come apart some, but 
I had to undo it today, and I, I was kind of happy. I kind of missed it when I came oh. home tonight. You're like, a black mailbox, huh? You see the duct tape flapping in the wind, because towards <laughs> the end, there was a little bit of a tail. Oh, yeah. The whole time, there's a tail. But that was, that was very smart of you. I thank you for that. Well, for the first time in a long time, there's no news desk, news desk stuff popping off on social media and the internets. So we decided to go right to um, our mailbag. And fortunately, our listeners really came through for us in the past week. We've gotten like four or five contacts. It's been really cool. So I wanted to read the first one, which really blew me away. This is really fun. It says, hello, Mark and Andy. My name is Stephen, and I'm an Englishman who lives in Bonnie, Scotland. I just wanted to congratulate you both on how the show is going and how much I enjoy it. I enjoyed it before when Seth was with you, but I have to say the combo of you and your son is a real winner, Mark. I like Sasquatch as it has always been a bit more lighthearted than most Bigfoot shows, and I think it's the only one I find myself giggling along with you and Andy's infectious laugh. I'm a big fan of Wes and Sasquatch Chronicles, but I think you two are vying for my favorite weekly listen. You can sense the relationship you have with your son just listening to you two interact, and it makes great listening. As for Andy, he is a naturally gifted presenter in my view, and you must be very proud of him. I know I would be. He is a credit to you and Mrs. Matsky. So I wish you both continued success with the show as you are both doing a fine job and send you greetings from far-flung Scotland. Take care both. Stephen. By the way, Andy, I'm sorry if it sounded like I was talking as if you were not in the room sort of thing. You're doing an awesome job, young fella. Thank you for thinking we're funny. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and you're so charming when you're robotic. <laughs> Thank you. I, we have a listener in Scotland. That's amazing to think how far Sasquatch is out there. I mean, it's crazy. It's awesome. The super kind letter. Thank you very yes, much, Stephen. Very much appreciated. And um, I'm glad you liked the show when Seth was on too. I did too. Uh, We see Seth from time to time. We're waiting for the arrival of baby Breedlove as we speak. So hopefully by the time the next episode rolls around, we'll have some happy news to report on that front. This next letter is from JD. And JD has been a longtime listener. And there's been a lot of interaction on Twitter. This is the first time that he's written a letter in. And he wrote a couple things. Uh, before we we got to this point in the letter, I'm just going to share this part. He says, I thoroughly enjoyed the Sasquatch Nation, Arizona episode. I'm a Pacific Northwest native. In fact, for many years, I lived in the Dalles where uh, Darren Richardson was, but have been in Arizona for the past decade plus. So I really loved hearing the sighting stories from the state. I have been camping up in the rim country outside of Payson myself. So it was pretty cool to hear stories about places that I've actually been. For a few years, I also lived near Walla Walla, Washington, where I have heard of there being some Bigfoot activity. I also recall, as a young teen, visiting a small store off of Highway 204 in Oregon, which runs over the Blue Mountains. The store is located in a tiny, unincorporated community called Tollgate, and inside the store, they'd prominently displayed a few plaster casts of footprints that were purported to have been cast in the woods nearby. As I was just Googling to make sure I remembered the correct location of the store, I came upon this article which speaks of an upcoming expedition this summer up into the Tollgate area. Apparently there is still activity going on up there. 
So we'll have to access mm-hmm. that when we get back to Oregon in Saswit Nation. But uh, thanks, JD. Uh, just a really great listener. As I said, he's been with the show pretty much from the beginning as a listener and has always supported the show and been really friendly to us. So uh, thanks, JD, for writing and for um, everything that you have communicated to us. It's great to hear Saswit Nation feedback from someone who's in that state. And it has come to my attention, speaking of Saswit Nation, that Ohio begins and ends in the same letter. <laughs> yeah, we were we were tired. <laughs> right. We were extremely tired, actually. But we persevered. We did it for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next letter comes from Keith. He writes, Mark and Andy, first off, I admire your relationship between father and son. It's refreshing to see a normal functioning family. Kudos. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe how bad I fanboyed out when Andy spoke about MST3K. I remember watching, uh, growing up watching it back when it first started in Minnesota. Cheers, Keith from Terry, Montana, and he is in charge of Mondak 14 Research. So we follow each other on Twitter and stuff. Really, really cool, though, the uh, Mystery Science Theater yeah. 3000 connection. Yeah, Cry Wilderness, MST3K. Check it out. It's on Netflix. They have a Bigfoot movie on there. It's great. You need to watch it if you haven't already. And if you have seen it already, watch it again. Do it. Or just watch the rest of the series because that's what I want to do. We need to, we need, <laughs> yeah. We're just going to stop right here and go watch some MST3K. As the Sasquatch Nation Information Center comes in. Wow. What was that even, I wonder? The UFOs that send us all our information to the show. (laughs) Flying saucers, We just read transcripts from the UFO. (laughs) We have teleprompters. We're just really good readers is all. Inflection (laughs) on this word. Okay. Um, Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Receiving transmission. (laughs) Okay, this was from our friend, Dadis Perry. I, what? I said it your no, way. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of anything. I'm just, yeah, sorry. I can't thank Mark and Andy enough for pushing me past episode one straight into Cry Wilderness. MST3K is crazy enough, but this movie, oh my, I'm in love. And then he quotes, America, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> it's... Cry Wilderness, seriously. Yeah. Everyone loves it, so you'll love it too. It's the way things work. See, it's funny because the reaction, some of the reaction that I see online is like, oh, Cry Wilderness is a terrible movie. But it's that's like, yeah, idea. that's exactly, <laughs> exactly. You are correct. And that's what makes it a perfect, wonderful mm-hmm. MST3K episode because it's just pure, what would you say, pure raw material for them it, to work yeah. their humor um, with. We just watched Beast of Hollow Mountain. MST3K. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're just about to the episode, I'm gonna spoil a little bit for you. Don't be like, oh yeah, I'm ready for the beast. Just kind of, just be patient. It's it's maybe worth it. It's not worth it. <laughs> so so thank you to everybody who writes in. It it really is a trip to get letters from people and know that they're listening and enjoying the show. Uh, it makes it worth it really for us to take the time and do this and. See Squirrel Man once Squirrel in a while. Man. Yeah. Um, if you would like to write, our email address is sasswhatmail at gmail.com. Thank you, Andy, for lip 
syncing or, you know, helping me out there. It's told you we good. run on teleprompters. Um, <laughs> and they're each o- uh, other. Other. They're each other. It sort of skipped right then. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, Dad, what so, are we talking about tonight? Well, tonight I thought it would be kind of a fun thought experiment episode. We haven't really done one of these in a while. What do or you ever. think? <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, it's like that. And for whatever reason... I'm going to be saying that periodically throughout yes, the now. Yes, but what do you, do you think, think about that? So I don't know why exactly, but I was thinking about classic cases. Well, and part of it is the fact that there is an ebook that I adore, to use a Seth Breedlove turn of phrase. Book that I adore, e-reader edition, is by Daniel Perez... And it's Bigfoot Encounters. I believe it's only available in ebook edition, at least on Amazon. Past. And so it's Bigfoot present. Encounters Past to Present. This to me is one of, this is a hidden gem in Bigfoot literature because not only are the synopsis of these important cases really succinct and to the point, and you can trust that they're factual because. Daniel Perez just totally does his homework. He also publishes Bigfoot Times, which I think is the only um, self-published newsletter that actually gets sent out through the U.S. mail. It's still going to this day. So the the information is correct and, and as fact-checked as can be. And the other part of that is the artwork is just fantastic. In each case that is talked about, there's at least one illustration that really does an excellent job of um, bringing these cases to life. And I just want to make sure I credit the illustrator. It's Stephen DeMarco. So it's Bigfoot Encounters Past to Present by Daniel Perez, illustrated by Stephen DeMarco. And it's available on Amazon as an e-reader edition. And it's extremely reasonable. I mean, it's the most bang for your... Bigfoot buck that I think you're ever going to get. So so what do you think about that? What do you think about that? I think it's a great book and everyone should get it. So I guess it was sort of reviewing that book that caused me to start thinking about classic cases. And so the thought experiment for our episode tonight is this. What do you think is the most important classic Bigfoot case? And the fun in this is sort of coming up with your own criteria for what constitutes most important. So I have four. <laughs> no, I have one I'll talk about. Yeah, we'll and have three others. We'll have honorable mention, I think, at the end. But we really are just going to concentrate on what we think is the one most important classic case. So did you want me to start? You can start. Start. You, are you sure? Start. Okay. My most important classic Bigfoot case is the Patterson-Gimlin film obtained in 1967 at Bluff Creek, California. And I will tell you why and what criteria I'm using in just a second. But in order to give you a flavor of Daniel Perez's book, I want to use some of the material that describes his that was my um, chair. the Patterson-Gimlin film in his book. 
says, on October 20th, 1967, the most convincing piece of photographic evidence for Bigfoot's existence was obtained at Bluff Creek, California. Here, the late Roger Patterson, born 1933, passed away 1972 from Yakima, Washington, managed to take a movie film of the creature. The film is made up of 953 16-millimeter frames and lasts about one minute when viewed on a movie screen. However, the subject in the movie cannot be seen in all 953 frames due to excessive camera movement caused by the excitement of the moment. Roger Patterson was a rancher, inventor, and rodeo man with a wife and three children. One day, he read a magazine article about Bigfoot and became very interested in finding this creature. He did a lot of Bigfoot research both alone and with his good friend Bob Gimlin, who he met at a rodeo. Bob Gimlin also lived in Yakima. The men used small horses when they went into the forest. Patterson wrote a book on Bigfoot that was published in 1966. This work was called, Do Abominable Snowman of America Really Exist? The details of the event leading up to the film are as follows. In the summer of 1967, two Bigfoot investigators, Renee DeHinden and John Green, investigated Bigfoot footprints found in Northern California. Word of the footprint discovery reached Roger Patterson, and he and Bob Gimlin planned a trip to look for more Bigfoot footprints in the same area. In the middle of October of 1967, the two men drove from Washington to California, taking with them three small horses. Everything was loaded in Bob Gimlin's Chevrolet truck. At the time, Roger was working on a documentary film about Bigfoot and wanted to get footage of the tracks to use in his movie. He had rented a 16mm hand-crank movie camera and carried this camera in the saddlebag of his horse in case he happened to see footprints or other evidence. The two men went into the area investigated by DeHinden and Green, but did not find anything worthy of filming. All of the prints that were there had been destroyed by road builders and curiosity seekers. Therefore, Patterson and Gimlin went to an area near Bluff Creek and set up their camp. The nearest big city to their camp is Eureka, which is about 46 miles away. Bluff Creek is a very long waterway that goes for miles into the mountains. For many days before their now famous encounter with Bigfoot, they scouted the creek beds and drove their truck at night, hoping to see any evidence of Bigfoot, but with no luck. Their luck changed on October 20th. The two had made a decision to investigate an area where they had been only days earlier. By this time, they had finished lunch. The day was cool, but the sun was shining. They headed upstream on the old Bluff Creek Road, which followed the creek of the same name. It was approaching 1.30 p.m., and their journey so far was, as usual, without incident. All that would change as they rounded a bend in the creek. At about the same time, the two men spotted something out of the ordinary, squatting next to Bluff Creek. It was a big, hairy, human-like monster. It was Bigfoot. The odor from the creature must have reached their horses as Patterson's horse almost threw him off. Fortunately, Roger was able to grab his movie camera from his saddlebag as he disengaged himself from the horse. By this time, the Bigfoot was walking away. Patterson ran after it, filming as he ran. As the Bigfoot was on the other side of Bluff Creek, Patterson had to run through the water, which was quite shallow at that time. The creature just kept walking, and Patterson, filming on the run, sort of got parallel to it at about 120 feet to its right and a little ahead. Patterson then stood still and filmed the Bigfoot as it carried on. The movie footage taken when Patterson was running is very jumpy and blurry. However, when he stood still, the images of the creature are quite clear. Both Patterson and Gimlin stated the Bigfoot was female as they observed it had breasts. When the film was later developed, what they observed was confirmed. That portion of the film, which is very clear and steady, definitely shows what appears to be the legendary Bigfoot. 
Further study of the film by several different researchers indicated the creature was about 7 feet 3 inches tall, taller than most professional basketball players. The story and the movie pictures made headlines around the world. The movie made Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin instant stars. Roger always maintained what he filmed was Bigfoot right up to his untimely death from Hodgkin's disease in 1972. Bob Gimlin states the same. More than four decades later, there have been many attempts to duplicate the film with a man in a gorilla costume. Also, there have been several people who claim to have been the creature in the film. They say they were wearing a Bigfoot or gorilla costume. It needs to be noted, however, that staged films cannot match even remotely the actual Patterson-Gimlin film, and none of the man-in-a-costume claims have withstood careful examination. The film, which is commonly known as the Patterson-Gimlin film, is not only the best evidence of a completely unclassified and undiscovered non-human primate in North America, it is also the most controversial. There continues to be those who think the film is real and those who think it is nothing more than a clever hoax. So, Your reactions. What do you think about that? Well, I'll let you know that, but do you have anything you My want to say reactions about PG? is that this is probably going on criteria. This is probably one of the most influential things to spark other researchers, for people to go, I don't know about that, and start investigating on their own. Um, like the, the man, the suit comments those are very you know like there's talking about nothing comes close which is amazing when you think about it just the way it moves seems natural it seems when you look at it it seems real and it probably is real because we've heard bob gimlin talk what is it two times now and i mean you you hear him talk and he's sincere he believed what he was seeing. No matter what anyone says, Bob Gimlin believed what he was seeing. Whether what he saw or not was real, that's another thing. But Bob Gimlin believed what he saw was real. Excellent points. So I have basically three criteria that I'm going to use in order to say why I think Patterson-Gimlin film is the most important classic case. Number one is that the image that you get in this movie has become the image of Bigfoot in pop culture. And you have people who aren't necessarily even interested in the topic who that's Bigfoot to them. You know, mm-hmm. we have, I have on the back of my car, one of those European... Uh, license plate style stickers and all it is is a silhouette profile of patty from patterson gimlin movie and it's really fun to pull up to a red light and watch people come up behind me and stop hopefully stop and i will see i this happened to me today see somebody point at the sticker and like make a comment to the person who's with them in the car like oh it's bigfoot that's how recognizable the Patterson-Gimlin image is in our culture today. And so for whatever other reason that uh, you think that it's real or not real, it really doesn't matter. The, the movie has done the job of putting that in people's heads as that's a Bigfoot. And there's just a, you know, from shirts, 
hats, lunchboxes, stickers, everything. There's variations on just even the pose of that famous frame where she looks back over her shoulder. Uh, second thing that I would say about the importance of the film is that it's withstood 50 years of scrutiny on both sides. Um, you have people, you know, believers who want it to be the very definitive proof and really intelligent people have examined it and have, you know, written entire volumes on why they think that it's persuasively a real creature. And you mentioned some of those things in passing, the musculature and the way that it moves, the locomotion of the creature, suggests that it's not just a guy in a suit, because a suit would hang on you. I mean, everybody knows what a guy in a gorilla costume looks like, and that's not what you see in this film at all. So it's, it, there's, and yet, the technology that's used in obtaining this footage is old enough that it, there's an ambiguity to it. It's not a sharp digital image that you get of the creature. It, there's, everyone acknowledges that you get to a certain point, and it's just not, you know, it's uh, not anywhere as clear as to be definitive. So it's withstood scrutiny. And at the same time, that footage has been, uh, especially, and Lauren Coleman points this out in his Bigfoot book, that around the turn of the century, 1999 to 2000, there were a lot of TV programs that were going hard after the Patterson-Gimlin film, trying to expose it as a hoax. And still to this day, it's just an unsettled question. So it's it's still here. We're still talking about it 50 years later. Nobody's been able to definitiv definitively prove that it's not real or prove that it's real. The third and final point that I will make about the importance of this case is that unlike many in the quote-unquote classic case camp, one of the principal witnesses is still alive and with us. And you mentioned the fact that we've heard Bob Gimlin talk on a couple of occasions, and we've been able to be up close with him, actually rub shoulders with the man, just get a sense of what he's like, what he's all about. And anyone who's ever done that comes away with the, the same impression that you had, and that is Bob Gimlin believes that what he saw was an unexplained creature that we think of as Sasquatch. And you press him a little bit more, you listen to him speak a little bit more, and he refers to them really as people, which that's a whole other subject. But the, my point here is that, unlike many other classic cases, if people have burning questions about how they got this movie, you can still go to the source. And it occurred to me as we were getting ready to record this episode that, and this gets into some of the the crazy history of the Patterson-Gimlin film, which we don't have time to get into. But initially, Bob Gimlin saw virtually nothing in terms of a financial piece of this movie being shown and sold and things of that nature. So it occurred to me that if anyone in the world would have a vested interest in debunking the Patterson-Gimlin film, it would be Bob Gimlin. Because he would you know, if he if there was a vengeful bone in his body or just a sort of a I want to get mine sense, then he would have been 
somebody who could have emerged and said, you know what, this was completely hoaxed. I can tell you exactly how it happened. And despite the fact of what he's gone through on sort of the, the periphery of this story about what happened after the film was obtained, he never did that. In fact, he insisted that the story as he relates it is the story. They weren't making it up. And, you know, he, he was there and he just vouches for what you see in that film as being a, a living and breathing creature. So that's my three criteria. It's the imprint of the image. It's the ambiguity of the image and how it's withstood all of this back and forth, push and pull for 50 years. And you still have a principal witness that if you are so inclined, you can find out where Bob Gimlin's going to be go to that conference, you can talk to him and say, okay, tell me the truth, what really happened out there. And he'll be completely consistent and say, here it is, take it or leave it, but it happened to me. That's all great points. I love that. So I'll go now. And my my story is very close to yours, and it is close in time, and it is also close Geographically, my most important classic case is that of Jerry Crew and Jerry Crew's footprints and all that that started. And I am also going to be reading from Bigfoot Encounters, Past and Present. I picked and chosen some, so we won't. I won't read the whole thing. But here is the story of Jerry Crew. It was Monday, August twenty seventh. 1958, and Jerry Crew had returned to work from his home in in say uh, Salier Salier California, right outside of Willow Creek. By occupation, he was a bulldoze operator and was employed in building roads. The job he was currently on was up in the mountains near Bluff Creek. As he approached his machine, he noticed large man-like tracks in the ground, but quickly dismissed them as bear tracks. However, as he climbed into the seat of his bulldozer, he looked again at the tracks. He observed the very large footprints that came down the mountain, approached his bulldozer, circled it, then continued down on the outer edge of the freshly graded road. Jerry was completely puzzled. As he looked at the tracks again, it was clear they were tr- they were the tracks of a man. The- they were human feet. They were the same as human feet, but they but were gigantic size, later measured to be 16 inches long and 7 inches wide, at the ball of the foot. Whoever or whatever was walking around here was walking with no shoes and had very big feet. The tracks he saw were probably made on Friday, August 24th, just a few days old, and they were not, and they were there when he left for the weekend. And they were not there when he left for the weekend. Crew thought at first that maybe someone, a man with bare feet, had come around to vandalize the equipment and steal things. But nothing was missing. Jerry's bulldozer ran perfect. Crew, who lived in the mountains for years and heard odd stories of hermits and wild men in the woods, never took any of them seriously. However, there were... The, this is talking about the footprints. However, they were sunk into the earth two inches where his own footprints only sank about half an inch. What, whatever made these tracks was heavy, and the step length from right to left foot was enormous, some 50 inches long. 
and this is continued on. Jerry took the time to follow the tracks to see if they were just a prank. But way up in the mountains were no... Well, sorry. Jerry took time to follow the tracks to see if they were just a prank. But way up in the mountains where nobody lived, it was odd. Of course, Jerry walked up the road and saw Bigfoot track. The Bigfoot tracks came down the mountains with a steep 75-degree angle slope. Then, onto the road, they approached the park bulldozer, circled it, and continued down the road for several hundred yards. From there, they abruptly left the dirt, the dirt road and went further down another steep mountainside. What kind of creature made these tracks, Jerry wondered. The story of the tracks settled down for a bit, but then got more attention when... Mrs. Jess Bemis wrote a letter to the Humboldt Times, a newspaper published in Eureka, California. She stated her husband had also seen large human-like footprints. The tracks were 14 to 16 inches long in length. The toes were very short, but were five. The toes were very short, but five to each foot. In October of 1958, the track maker had re- re- yeah, had reappeared at Bluff Creek Road site and again left its footprints. But by this time, Jerry Crew had received considerable ridicule for his previous finding. To stop people from ridiculing him, he did something that brought the mystery to be seen in a different light. He made a plastic casting of one of the gigantic footprints he found in the soil and showed it to his friends, family, and local Hoopa Indians, but did not get much reaction. A relative of Jerry Crew told me in 2009 the casting material of the original Bigfoot footprint was a concrete mixture and not plaster. Crew then reported his find to the Humboldt Times newspaper and the late Andrew Gensoli, a reporter, featured the story in the front page article. The headlines read, Huge footprints hold mystery of friendly Bluff Creek Giant. The Associated Press turned the story over to the world, and soon newspeople were clamoring for more details. Who or what was responsible for this mystery? The word Bigfoot was used in the story and caught on and became the common name for the creature in the United States. The only minor difference today is the name Bigfoot has been, combi- has been combined into a compound word, Bigfoot. So, what do you think about this big? foot story well as far as most important i can completely understand why that would be chosen if for no other reason than the coining of the name that's my reason i mean bigfoot starts here i mean yes there were reports from i guess you could go back a hundred years earlier but still this is where bigfoot started and this has evidence to it. Not that Patterson Gimlin film doesn't, because, I mean, I'm not saying this is more important. But this has evidence, and I guess that's the only part of the story. But this is a very honest story to me. I mean, you look at it, and it's just this construction worker not wanting much attention. And he finds these tracks that, when you think about it, if you would have not thought twice about it, he would have bulldozed them over, and we would never have the term Bigfoot. Hmm. I mean, when you think about it that way, it's crazy. And the way Marion T. Place tells the story in On the Track of Bigfoot is 
my favorite telling of that. I wish I could read that all, but that would if I read it, it'd take an hour to read the whole thing. And I mean, this is just it's a unique story in a way of it being just the footprints found. It's not like I heard a wood knock and I turned to my right and there was the footprints. It was just like guy comes into work, sees these weird footprints and this whole thing gets started. And was it, yeah, it was last episode, Saswat Nation, Arizona. The guy talks about the footprints, which made him remember his sighting. And I guess this is another one where people go, huh? And this, the thing is with the footprints, they line up with what we think Bigfoot footprints should look like now. The basis that we've we've made, f- these fit in that. And I think that's great. Yeah, that picture of Jerry Crew with the track cast is just iconic at this point. And uh, I agree completely with what you said. So... Anything else on Jerry Crew that nope. you wanted to say? Okay. He knew what to do. He cast a footprint. <laughs> he did know what to do. Um, so let's talk about, real quick, runners-up. Honorable mention of most important classic cases. Albert Osman is my number two. And then number three would be Abe Canyon. Albert Osman is probably one of those stories that everyone in Bigfoot at one point, it was probably like the first or second time you read it, you go, wow. I mean, that's, it's a crazy idea. And another where the guy, the guy really doesn't make a whole big deal out of it, like Bob Gimlin and the Patterson Gimlin film. Um, It's just an amazing story of how this guy gets kidnapped, essentially, by these hairy giants. And it's, it's amazing. And Ape Canyon is probably one of the stories that influenced me a lot. I mean... Why is that? Well, Bigfoots are attacking people. It's cool. <laughs> right, and terrifying. <laughs> it's right? cool and terrifying. I probably lost a night's sleep one day going, what if they come to our house? Well, don't shoot one. That's sort of the... I won't. The cautionary That's the real reason the why I don't like hunting is because I'm afraid the deer people <laughs> will come. No, I don't know if that's true. Well, going back to Albert Osman for a minute, I, the, one of the things I really love about that account is that it's um, you have the involvement of John Green mm-hmm. and Rene DeHinden. And it's just that that whole grouping of researchers is absolutely fascinating to me. And it's been a well documented on our, on this show before of how much I and and Seth both are just so interested in that era of those those guys. You know, they, they all of them have their own distinct personalities and what must it have been like to sort of move in their circle. And Green was convinced that Osman was telling the truth, which goes a long way with me. DeHinden would later say that he was a storyteller. This was in the 1990s. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, that's a whole another story, I suppose. If you can, I think it's important to try and get your hands on an actual transcript of Osman's own words. Because a lot of books summarize the Albert Osman story, but it's really, really interesting to hear it in his own words, his own language. You get details that you just don't get in summaries. So I really like those classic cases that you gave. What are your runner-ups? Well, I was I was thinking Osman 
honestly. And I, I, f- I forget where I read this, but it, I just had the impression that it was John Green's involvement with Osman that helped sort of flip a switch for him. It wasn't like the one and only thing, but his interview and, and interviewing Osman on more than one occasion caused him from being, I think, um, somewhat interested in the topic and sort of in a detached way, like, oh, this is interesting. After he talked to Osman a couple times, he was he got more into it. So there's that sort of catalyst moment there that makes us a super important story. I agree. <laughs> what do you think about that? Oh. So I think that's about it for this episode. We wanted to keep it kind of concise and not go on and on because it'd be easy to do. But what I would be interested in is what is your most important classic case? Do you have something else besides Patterson-Gimlin film or Jerry Crew finding the tracks around his bulldozer? If you do, please write us at sasswhatmail at gmail.com. If somebody would like to see what we're up to, just in general, how would they go about doing that? Um, they would go to our Facebook Why is page. that like it's, a crazy... Uh, I don't know. It's not. It's just, it's y- funny for me for some reason. Why? <laughs> if you want up-to-the-minute Sasswit information, become a Sasswit insider, and you'll get a live stream of Andy during his day. Um, just check into YouTube. <laughs> check out... me. <laughs> Andy's cage. I it's think like we would YouTube. lose money on that We would one. lose money. Um... Here's Andy getting upset with algebra. No, why is it like this? Okay. Uh, now he's Facebook dunking page. outside on the basketball. <laughs> he's not on this camera. Where is he? Um, <laughs> Facebook page. And Twitter. We're Sasswet Show. Oh, quick shout out to one of our listeners, Paul. I promised Paul I would shout him out on the show. So here you go, Paul. We really appreciate you being a long-time listener to Sasswood. So thank you very much for that. Here's how I wanted to go out. Lauren Coleman, as you might imagine, is very eloquent in talking about Patterson-Gimlin film. And this is from his book, Bigfoot, The True Story of Apes in America. I just love this paragraph, the concluding paragraph that he has. It says, The tantalizingly curious nature of the Patterson-Gimlin footage verifies for all time the need for more evidence and future searching After all, the footage reinforces the notion that this creature is walking away from, not toward us, inviting us to follow. 